Welcome to the Learning World Podcast. We have many different changes coming up on the podcast. Just one example is the live stream that's going to be coming up in the next 30 days. Keep it, keep posted on that. Join the newsletter, Twitter, all those things that are in the description to learn more. Additionally, on the website in the next 48 hours, I'm going to have a section where you can leave a voicemail asking a question, and I will use that in the podcast with a guest, and you'll hear it, which is kind of fun. It's a good way to say thank you. I know a lot of you have been asking questions over span of the podcast, and I just want to uh, find a public way to demonstrate that and include you in the podcast, because I mean, I make this for each and every one of you, and I can't keep making it if no one's listening. So I want to keep encouraging you guys to guys and ladies listen in and contribute and leave reviews and all those things. And I think that's a good way to do it. The podcast is about learning. Some episodes you'll learn how people got where they were. Some episodes you'll learn what people are building and how they are able to do it. Some episodes it's kind of a update on the people and what they've done recently. The big thing is you're going to learn really interesting stuff from the people who've who've really lived through it, you know, like like George Church or, or Jim Cantrell or any number of people I interviewed last year. Check out, if you're this is your first episode, the top 10 episodes from last year. If you want to get a sense of the podcast, pick any of those. I, I stand behind them. They're amazing. But today I am joined with two special people, Dr. Mohammed Ibrahim. He's board certified in physical medicine and rehabilitation. He is board certified uh, again in sports medicine. Um, he's out in New Jersey along with our other guest, Linda Gurgis. You can check her out on social media. She has a, a great following where she looks at the American pain management problem, which is kind of the big thesis of this, not thesis, but theme of this episode. We're going to look at the American pain problem. So if you're, if you've been watching John Oliver or paying attention to the news, there is this opioid epidemic going on in the United States. And this is kind of my little mini take from two people in the field kind of experiencing these problems, looking at the different factors that have contributed to the opioid epidemic, kind of looking at some of the numbers, some of the things they wish that there was more in place to help prevent this problem from continuing and that type of thing. You also get book recommendation and a good sense of who they are as well at the end. In terms of the American pain problem with opioids and uh, addiction and these types of things, what was your first exposure to it? Like, when did you first come? I think the first time that I've seen the problem with opioids was actually in medical school and I was doing my clinical rotations. It's something that's always been there, but it's getting worse over recent years. And I think too, like as a resident, a lot of people, feel that it's an easy target to get opioids. So I think all during residency is something we experienced. Yeah, so for me, it actually didn't start, I, I wasn't really exposed to it until I started a practice in private practice. Because I, you know, I, uh, in my residency, I mean, I started a little bit in medical school and residency, but in terms of the, like the real problem with opioids, I didn't see until, you know, I was in private practice for, uh, within my first couple of months, and I had patients coming in, you know, asking for opiates. And I was, you know, I admit I was a little naive back then and like, oh, you're, you know, your bottle fell in the, you know, the toilet on the, the toilet. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Okay. You know, and then I quickly realized, like, wait a second, something's going on here. Like, this patient's been coming in every two weeks early for prescriptions. So it's just one of those things where, you know, you, you know, you, you pick up a good, uh, you know, kind of detection of those patients pretty quickly. When I was looking at all the numbers of prescriptions, they were like, they seemed really high to me. I, I don't have that many prescriptions. Um, 
just in general, or I've never had that many. Though my, you know, my dad and my my mom, they they could get a bunch. But for for opioids, it was, I think in some of the years, it was over like 200 million prescriptions, which seems kind of high to me, considering there's only like 340 yeah. people. Three, yeah. At yeah. one point, Vicodin was the number one prescribed drug in America. Yeah, and and so I'm just curious, like, is is that process of like people kind of like losing things and then coming back in for more prescriptions? Why it's that high, or is that um, or like what what accounts for those numbers being that way? I think one problem is patients do doctor shopping, so they might go visit five different ERs and get a prescription for all of them. I think now we have the state registry that we can look up prescriptions and see what they've received, but we didn't have that in past years. Hmm. Yeah, that definitely helps. You know, I think if a patient comes in and says, hey, I dropped my pills in the toilet, you know, obviously every case is different. You got to kind of, you know, look at the person in front of you, but the likelihood of that actually happening is probably very small because I can tell you that, you know, patients will always say that they magically drop their opiate prescriptions down the toilet, but how many come in saying, hey, I dropped my diabetes medicine down the toilet. Can I get an early refill? And I'm sure Dr. You know, Dr. Gerges could probably tell you that she's never had that question before. Yeah, no, I've never had that question before. I have patients <laughs> tell me they had their opioids stolen out of the backpack, but they left their diabetes medications behind. Yep. Yeah, so the kind of looking at the, the system in place, if I, if, I've been lucky enough to not have any uh, broken bones or anything like that where I would need opioid level pain management. But if, if someone were to have something that would require pain management on that level. How does the current system work to where opiates seem like the the given choice versus any other thing? And I think uh, in our, in our pre in our, our, our pre talk, Ibrahim, you, um, you mentioned that the CDC put out new guidelines, which is really helping make it instead of just like opioid specific to like having a more of a right a, a balanced thing. But I'm I'm just curious, like looking yeah, at the so system. Today, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. You, you, so, you, so I mean, you always want to go with, you know, the most conservative treatment first. So, you know, you always start with anti, you know, in terms of medication, you would start with something like Tylenol or anti-inflammatories. Um, and if that doesn't help, then obviously, you know, you can go to something a little bit stronger. There are weak opiates and there are obviously stronger opiates. Um, and then there's short acting and long acting. So um, you want the patient, you know, the general rule is, you know, you want the lowest dose possible for the shortest amount of time. Um and so, you know, I've, I've seen patients who have been on the same medication for, you know, 20, 30 years. They were started as, you know, a very low dose. And, and here they are, you know, 20, 30 years later on their own very high doses. Um, and they just they can't seem to get off the medication. Um, and that's kind of a fault of, you know, the physician who was treating them that they didn't try anything else other than just continue prescribing the opiate. Because over time, your body does get used to it and you need more and more to have the same effect. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, in terms of, you know, treating any kind of pain issue, like I said, you know, we, um, I always recommend that the patients, you know, that the physician sends those patients out to um, a pain management doctor or, or a, a physical medicine rehabilitation doctor um, so that they can uh, try other things other than opiates. Because, like I said, there's lots of injections that I can perform that can help with pain. Um, obviously, if it's a fracture, they need to have it, you know, surgically repaired or casted. Um but, uh, you know, this physical therapy, chiropractic care, acupuncture, um, there's a lot of different ways to treat pain other than prescribing a pill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, in primary care, if I have a patient who has chronic pain, I, I feel that's a pain, patient that belongs with a specialist, such as pain management or 
physical medicine and rehab. If it's acute problem like a broken bone and the patient really does have the level of pain where they need opioids, I would limit it just by giving them like five days prescription. I wouldn't give them more than that. If you, if you, let's say there was a person who you knew, like if, if someone was a recovering addict, I imagine you, you couldn't use opioids as an option. So then what would they, what would then be the placeholder for what you use in that situation to manage that type of pain? So that's exactly where, you know, where someone like me would come in with other treatment options, like I said, you know, therapy, chiropractic care, acupuncture, okay. injections. Um, there, all are, there are alternative medications to opiates. Uh, and not to say that if someone is a recovering addict, they, they, that's if they can never get opiates again, but I would, you know, very closely monitor that patient. Um, and, you know, from the very get-go, set this, you know, set the standard that, look, this is a temporary thing. You're not going to be on this medication long-term. This is just to get you over this hump that, you know, that you're going through right now. And, and then we're going to, you know, it, it always helps to have an end date in mind. So you say like, look, within, you know, six weeks, you're going to be off this medication completely. Um, this way the patient knows that, you know, they're not, this is not something that you're going to have to rely on. You're going to actually have to do some work to get yourself better. Mm-hmm. Are there, are there other things like that, that you kind of prime them to be aware of the, of, of like not getting, you know, addicted to it or, or that type of thing? Cause like, I imagine if I got, you know, if I were to have opioids for the first time that, I, I mean, I don't, I don't drink, like I, I don't do a, a <laughs> you know, like, so like drugs kind of have like a, yeah, everyone's different. Yeah. So then how do you, or like for people listening in, like how, how can they be mindful of that other than just being very strict? Like, you know, the doctor says six weeks, you know, make sure we're doing the physical therapy and so we can like get off as soon as possible. Yeah, it's, you know, taking the medication as prescribed. Don't take more than you're prescribed. Um, you know, don't take the medicine if you don't actually have pain. Uh, you know, so we'll tell patients that, you know, try, you know, try ibuprofen first. And if that doesn't help, then maybe you can take, you know, the, the opiate or something um, or, you know, or, 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 you know, something a little bit stronger than, than an NSAID and, and, you know, kind of in between the opiate and the, uh, uh, the NSAID. Um, but, uh but yeah, I mean, if patients are prescribed, taking the medication as prescribed, um, they're not no way abusing it in terms of, you know, they're not taking multiple you know, pills at the same time, they're not taking it too close of a dose together, then it's, you know, the likelihood of getting addicted to a medicine, unless you have, you know, a very addictive personality, um, is, is low. You know, I've had a lot of patients come to me and, I, you know, they're in a lot of pain and they are really suffering, so I'll prescribe an opiate to them and they always tell me, oh, no, I don't want to get addicted. And I'll tell them, like, look, this is not, something that, you know, yes, there is a potential for addiction with this medication, but as long as you take it as prescribed and we're, you know, we're using it for a very specific purpose, the likelihood of being addicted is, is very low. And I think that's one good reason that we need to get specialists involved with these patients because it should be only one doctor monitoring these prescriptions. I get patients, they go to the pain management doctor and come back to me and they ask me for a prescription. And I always tell them, no, it's just one doctor to be prescribing it. Mm-hmm. So it's like the, the value of centralizing it and having one person who kind of sees everything in practice versus right. having like potentially two doctors not knowing everything. 100% what's going on. But then again, yeah, exactly. we're getting we're getting better uh, note-taking technology, hopefully. Um, though I, I think I was reading somewhere that it's actually really hard to get, like, to share doctor's hip notes or something like that. 
Um, but that, that's a comment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it depends on the relationship you have with the, with the physician. You know, like Dr. Rivers will refer patients to me, and I always, and I mean, I try to remember to always send the notes over to her. Um, you know, every now and then, maybe one or two slips by, but um, for the most part, I mean, it just helps to keep it. You know, whoever, whatever doctors are involved in that patient's care, informed about what's going on, because um, it just it helps. You know, if she sends them to me for a specific reason, it it helps her to be able to continue treating that patient's other issues if she knows what I'm doing. One one thing that was really striking to me is that, and I didn't know this, like, because whenever you hear, like, what's the leading cause of death in America, it's, you, you know, you hear, like, heart disease, but then if you qualify it as people underneath the age of 50, the leading cause of death in America is from addiction. I think, I think right. it's specifically opioid addiction, but, um, right. but so, and it, it seems like that's happened over the course of 20 years or thereabouts, like, it's kind of, like, gone really, really high up, but... Then in 2015, um, which you you noted, Ibrahim, in our uh, in our previous conversation, is that um, the CDC put out guidelines to help with that. If you had, if you could, like, kind of make any system, what other things would you th- think would be really helpful in like bringing that number ex- substantively down? Uh, I mean, I think you know the states are getting better at having the you know the statewide registry and. You know, for New Jersey, we can look up multiple states, um, and every day I see, you know, there's more and more states adding to it. But I think having a national system helps. Um, for for a while, you know, I was able to look up Pennsylvania, but not New York. So a patient could have easily been going, you know, across the the Gothels Bridge to to New York and getting a prescription from over there, and I would have had no idea. Um, so they eventually added in New York, so now I could see, you know, New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Connecticut, so kind of all the surrounding states. Um, so having, I think, a, a national registry would definitely help. Um, and, you know, just educating physicians on, you know, proper opiate prescribing, you know, again, just, the, you know, having them do you know, prescribe the lowest dose possible, checking urine toxicology screening, always checking the prescription monitoring before writing a prescription. And if, you know, if they're a primary care physician, um, referring them out to a specialist, if it looks like it's something that's going to require more than just a single five-day prescription. I think another big problem we have is the insurance coverage. A lot of the alternatives to opioids like physical therapy and chiropractor and acupuncture are not very well covered by insurance companies, so patients have to pay a lot out of pocket, so it actually is much cheaper just to take that Percocet tablet. Yeah, exactly. That's that's actually a huge thing that I have to deal with all the time, that you know, as a physiatrist, I, I routinely prescribe physical therapy to my patients, and it gets denied by the insurance company. Um, or even, in, you know, I could do an injection and get the patient out of pain right away, but they'll deny it saying that, you know, we're, we're just not paying for this. Um, the other thing is the opioid abuse, the abuse deterrent uh, medications tend to be a little bit more expensive, and so the insurance companies won't prescribe it. So they'd rather cover, you know, an Oxycontin or an Oxycodone, which is not abuse deterrent that doesn't have the technology built into it where it can't be crushed and snorted or injected versus another medication that is, you know, a new one of the newer ones that actually is abuse deterrent and doesn't allow for that manipulation. Um, and so patients are getting this, you know, this, you know, this straight medication that they can abuse, you know, crush and alter and, and then abuse versus this, you know, the more expensive ones that, that they can't. Um, and that's, that's a huge issue for me because I always try to prescribe the opiate, you know, the, the abuse deterrent medication. Um, but I, I have a lot of pushback from the insurance companies. 
is there is it a big cost difference like i, I don't know these numbers so like is it like it is, i mean yeah it is because it's a brand name medication versus the generic you know say a generic oxycodone will probably be you know a few dollars for a month's prescription versus um you know a a name brand abuse deterrent one um it's probably gonna be a few hundred dollars mm-hmm. um but that's something that you know has a that the drug companies and the insurance companies have to be able to to work out so that to make these medications more affordable for patients. And another thing with physical therapy, the patient will pay maybe a $15 copay for a month of the oxycodone, but they'll have to pay a $15 copay every time they go to physical therapy. And usually that's right. like three times a week. So that, that ends up being a lot more money. Who or how are we working to alleviate that problem so that like the 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 more expensive one is more the route you go in conjunction with other things versus taking the cheapest option? I think one issue, the government is making all these new mandates to control how doctors prescribe opioids and try to limit their number. But at the same time, we have other options that are not affordable. So I think they're focusing on completely the wrong issue here. I think more issue needs to be how insurance companies cover services. I think there needs to be more transparency in the insurance industry. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think that um, just, you know, having that conversation with these insurance companies and, and getting them to cover these alternatives to opiates um, is a much better option than just say, hey, you know, here's $15. Here's your, here's your you know, one month prescription of, of opiate. Is there anything unique about New Jersey that's allowing people such as yourself, Ibrahim, to like be around there and be uh, effective in this way? Or- yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, you know, the pain management is getting to be a much more popular field. So more and more, you know, uh, students graduating medical school are, are choosing, you know, either physiatry or, or pain management specialties. Um, and so I think, you know, as over time that the field is definitely growing um, and it's getting much more competitive too. Um, you know, in New Jersey, depending on, you know, depending on part, what parts of New Jersey you are, you could find, you know, five pain management doctors in, you know, within a five mile radius. Um, and then, yeah, you go into the Midwest somewhere and, you know, they may not be as, you know, um, as, po- as populated over there or as, as dense over there. Um, but, you know, it really depends on, on the areas. Obviously, like you said, in Chicago, they're, they're going to have a lot more as like any other city. Um, but, you know, the Northeast tends to be, you know, very physician heavy. Um, you know, out in California also, they, you know, there's a lot of doctors out there. Um, but I think the Midwest is kind of, it's just cause it's so spread out and there's just not a lot of people out there. Yeah. I think another thing that helped in New Jersey, they passed a law that when you're starting an initial prescription of opioids, you're only allowed to give five days. So, and also doctors now are required to be on the state monitoring system and check prescriptions before they give it. So I think that's cut back a little bit on the patients who go from doctor and doctor trying to get prescriptions. Is there, are there like common misconceptions in terms of the opiate epidemic? Like I think, I think to some extent, a number of people will be like, oh yeah, that's like, it sounds familiar because it's being talked about more and more and more, which is a good thing. But are there yeah. common misconceptions that like you, either of you tend to run into that you spend a lot of your time correcting? Yeah, like I said, I mean, you know, some patients, the minute I, you know, if they're in a lot of pain and I want to prescribe an opiate, they're, they're very fearful. They say, oh, no, I don't want to get addicted. Um, and I think there's kind of the two extremes that, you know, the the people who want to avoid it at all costs because they're so afraid that they're going to get addicted or they've heard just, you know, horrible things about it. Um, and the people who refuse to take any other treatment other than the opiate. 
Um, but it's like I said, it's you know being able to offer that patient other you know, alternatives to just than that other than just prescribing an opiate. You have to be able to, you know, number one, obviously correctly diagnose them and, and find out what's going on and then give them the right treatment. And, you know, if an opiate is part of that, then it's, you know, part of that treatment regimen. But, you know, the goal is to get them off it as quickly as possible. Some people will argue that opioids are not a gateway drug to heroin, but I've seen high school kids coming to me on heroin and they want to get off of it. So I, I think definitely opioids are a gateway to heroin. And I think, Heroin is actually cheaper than opioids. Something I, I am curious about is when I was looking at the rates, there was um, there's opioid abuse and, and its relation to, to there'll be a nice little graph when you know, people look at it in the show notes. But opioid abuse and the death rate was one part. And then there was heroin was another part of the graph, which is, was slightly higher. But then there was this other type that was like synthetic. I was learning more and more about this and it seemed that that one was much worse than the other two. And so I'm curious, like, why, why make something that's like a hundred or like fifty times more powerful than op- opioids if opioids can basically do the work? Yeah. So a lot of people who are dying from drug overdoses, um, it's because there's, you know, the drug dealers are are adding in a lot of extra stuff into their, you know, whatever they're selling because they want to have the most the strongest stuff out there. So if someone dies from your product, then, you know, everyone knows, oh, that, you know, they have the strongest stuff. We definitely have to go buy them. So it's almost like advertising for the drug dealers when someone dies of, you know, from their, from their product. Um, and so I think that's why they're adding in a lot of, you know, fentanyl and, and all that kind of stuff into, um, into their marijuana, into their heroin and, and everything else. So, you know, the people who are buying opiates off the street or, or drugs off the street, I don't necessarily know what they're getting. I mean, there's no, it's not like they're, you know, it comes with an ingredient list of here, your marijuana contains this, this, and this, you know, <laughs> and the serving size is this much, you know, but, uh, um, so it's, I think, you know, a lot of the people who are dying from opioid abuse are because, you know, they're, they're probably taking opiates and then they're doing something else on the side too. Mm. So it's not like something like industry wise, it's more like the, the drug people are adding it. It's not like, yeah. Something- it's not yeah, like, I mean, I've had patients who, who told me, you know, they all they ever, you know, they'll swear up and down that all they, you know, they'll just smoke marijuana and they do no other drugs. Yeah, fentanyl is showing up in their, in their drug monitor, in their, you know, prescription, uh, I mean, in their, their uh, urine toxicology screens. And, uh, and it's because there, and there's been multiple articles written about this, how um, there's, you know, marijuana on the street is being laced with fentanyl uh, to make it more stronger. Uh, uh, Linda, Linda, any additional thoughts on that? I think some people too, they just get so addicted. They don't really care what they're taking. Like there's this two ideas that I think most people would either believe or that they would like to believe, which is that doctors generally want to help people. And uh, especially with the the previous thing I said, where like there's the the prevalence is so much, but the, and the second one is that everyone's kind of the hero of their own story. So how, how are doctors who you know, have been a part of this problem, like overprescribing. Like, how are they correcting it, or is there a sense of like ownership to that at all? I think doctors are being much more careful how they're prescribing opioids. There are still a few outliers who are doing what they want, but some of these doctors have actually been arrested and gone to jail. So I think we're seeing less of those pill mill doctors around. And I think people are checking the registry to see what prescriptions a patient has been on before. So I think most doctors are taking responsibility for how they're prescribing these medications. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and, and it's, I'm definitely seeing a lot more referrals to, to physicians like myself uh, for pain management. So if a patient presents to their primary care doctor and says, you know, hey, I've been in a lot of pain and, you know, I, uh, I, I want an opiate prescription, they'll refer them out to someone like me so that we can, again, you know, whether the opiate is appropriate or not is, is one thing, but that we also can offer them other treatment options as well. So, I mean, that's good to know that the like doctors are are, are being more, much more mindful. The in some of the places in America, it's it, I think in West West uh, I don't have the map in front of me. The in West Virginia is the one that it's like there's West in the name. There's I don't think there's many places in America that have that, but mm-hmm. the, there's a huge prevalence of it there. Do do pain doctors or, or these doctors who that recognize that problem ever think about? Like going there and like helping people get off of the these issues, or like, is there any organization or group coming together to collectively try and like go to these like hot hot center areas and cause the change that they want to see? Yeah, I mean, I think like I said, a lot of that is is on the state level. It's you know what the state is doing to to kind of change prescribing habits to you know offer you know addiction help. Um, I know, you know, uh, Governor Christie, and, um, you know, he had a, a kind of a big war on it, on opiates, um, you know, in his last few years in term. And uh, so, you know, there was addiction centers popping up left and right. Um, that's when all those guidelines came out about the opiate prescribing and all that um, and check prescription monitoring. So it's really um, the it's really, I think, on the state level of, of what, you know, what kind of legislation is being done to curtail. Well, I was thinking like there's um there's always these doctors that go to like Africa or like the after hurricanes and stuff like that. And if this is to the extent of an epidemic, I'm always curious to learn if there are doctors in the same vein going around and try and help out like in places in San Francisco or where like these hotbed areas are. Um, the problem is yeah, you practice in the state where you're licensed. Oh. And the process of getting licensed can take months. So it's not like I can easily go to another state just to help out. Mm-hmm. And then the difference is, I think, you know, there's a difference between someone who's been in a hurricane who needs like basic medical care versus, you know, telling someone you, you're addicted to your opiates, you need help. You know, the very first thing is the person has to recognize they need help because you can talk to them all day long and offer them alternative treatments at the end of the day. If they don't think they need help, they're not going to, you know, follow through with your recommendations. Yeah. But, so we've talked a lot about like the, the top down approach. So like the state's or who are implementing better laws, the doctors who are being more mindful of these drugs. Are there people, is there anything that the people such as myself or, or, or that the non-doctor people can do to be more helpful or mindful or be a part of solving this huge problem? I think one issue is that there are a lot of opioids out there. People get them when they go to the ER or when they go to surgery. I think when you have opioids laying around, it's set up for somebody to take them. So I think when anybody's done and they don't need it anymore, they need to dispose of it and not have all these medications lying around. Okay. And then also, you know, for your family members, if you see, you know, if you recognize some abnormal behavior in one of your family members that they're suddenly become very withdrawn, that they're missing school, missing work, um, that they're just, you know, you, you know, there's something's just off with them. Um, you know, bring it up to either the family member or, or someone else who, who can address it. Um, you know, because a lot of times it, you know, there's a, someone who's addicted to opiates or other drugs in, in the family and 
they don't want to make things awkward or they, you know, they just, they choose to ignore, you know, it's like, oh, he'll figure it out and they look the other way and, and things will just always escalate. So being able to, you know, speak to your family members about, about their problems, I think is, is a big thing that would, would help those patients. And, and a lot of the documentaries and a lot of the reading I was, I, I was doing that, that when people are having these problems, they feel very isolated and, and like uh, ashamed of these uh, addictions right. things. And it's like, it's, I don't, I don't, I don't know if there's people that can not be addicted to things. Like, if you were to give, like, I don't know if there's like some abnormal subset of the human population that like is naturally unaddictive, unaddicted to things. But I think like anyone can get addicted, and and yet like it's right. really hard to get unaddicted. So I, I really like that. Like people are kind of trending to being more like open about and engaging about these things, and and, and kind of being more of a community-minded aspect to it. So that that's really good. The, um, is there is there anything else like so? Be mindful of the if you're if a family member is basically hurting or uh, behaving oddly, just being um like like hey you know I I, I care about you let's let's talk or uh, be mindful of um, and having engaging conversations with doctors. Are there other things that people can be doing to be helpful? Are there like good organizations like if anyone's in like the New Jersey area that's listening to this? Are there are there good organizations to go volunteer with? Are there um is there like if, if someone in your community came up to you and said, hey, I want to help out with this, like how would, what are some of the things that you would suggest they do? And then maybe they can extrapolate it to their, the, pe- the listeners can extrapolate it to where they're from. One thing I have a big problem is that when I have a patient, they recognize they have a problem. It's very hard to find a rehab facility that they can go to. A lot of times they don't take certain insurances. I remember having a teenager, it took me six months for her to go to a rehab facility for IV heroin addiction. So I, I think we need to petition the lawmakers in New Jersey to try to get more of these facilities open. And I think the federal government did release some money for mental health issues. So I think some of this should be dedicated to solving this problem. Abraham, any uh, additional thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think, uh, you know, from, although from, you know, the few addiction centers that I have spoken to, they they have told me that legally they're not allowed to turn away any patient whether they take their insurance or not. Um, but I don't know exactly what that translates into what that translates, you know, into actually the person showing up there. Do they have to show up their doorstep and say, "Hey, I need help," or you know, if they call and say, "Hey, I'd like to come," and they say, "Oh, sorry, we don't take your insurance," but if they show up at their doorstep, they can, you know, they have to take them. I'm not really sure, you know, what that means by legally we can't turn anyone away. Because um, I have had patients where I told them to, you know, look, you, you need to call this place up. And they said, oh, they didn't take my insurance. I have a really hard time with Medicaid patients because a lot of them are told that the facility doesn't take Medicaid. Uh, yeah, so that's, you know, that's, that's actually a good point because um, it's usually, you know, the the lower, soci- I mean, anyone could obviously be addicted to opiates, but it's, again, it's, there's a kind of a bias towards it being the lower socioeconomic uh, class. And so a lot of those patients are on Medicaid and they can get the proper treatment that they, that they need because no one takes Medicaid. That's weird. The, uh, I was reading that like one in three Medicaid pres- uh, people, I don't know, insur- uh, people who have Medicaid that they're prescribed an opioid, um, which is, it seems like a lot. Um, but I thought Medicaid was something that was uh, accepted across the, the whole United States. But there it is, but it's, and most doctors won't accept it um, just because it, it reimburses so low that it's not really worth, you know, that physician's time to, to see those patients because they end up losing money on them. 
Um, you know, fortunately, there are doctors like Dr. Gurgis out there who who does take it. And so, you know, she's doing a service to the community because she's, you know, they, these patients have somewhere to go. Um, but a lot, especially a lot of the subspecialties won't take Medicaid. And so these patients are are forced to kind of stick to like the academic medical centers and, and those big places that will do a lot of charity care and things like that um, for their treatment. And then, you know, they're at that point, they're one of, you know, hundreds of patients that come through during the week. So, you know, their quality of care is obviously going to suffer when, when those doctors have to see that high of a volume to, you know, to make ends meet. During the the Dust Bowl, one of the things that we did, um, we inst- instituted a lot of different practices to make sure that we wouldn't lose out on the huge uh, Midwest and become a desert. And one of the things they did okay. is that if you had a farm and someone and another farmer was like, hey, I'll buy your, your farm and like, we'll keep farming on it. Um, and I can only offer you like 16 cents on the dollar versus compared to another person who is a, like a developer who would offer them a lot more money that the government would come up and then they'd shore up the difference. And so right. I'm wondering if a similar process, like, uh, like doctors who like they're not getting the, they're, they're getting low reimbursements for Medicaid. If there could be another like system added onto it, that would make up the difference for that so that they don't get hit with it. So it's the, like, on reimbursement wise, it's the same thing to them, right? And that they can still yeah. have, yeah. I don't know how that would work. Like, uh, yeah. I mean, Medicaid is a is a government funded program, so that money is coming from the government. Um, so it's really just you know how much is the government willing to pay for these medical services? I, I think though, because it's state sponsored, and there's a lot of states that are facing bankruptcy themselves, so they have to get this extra money from somewhere. Yeah. Are there are there things that either on the, the, the grassroots level that people can be, um, you know, sharing or like be, um, you know, like signing petitions and that type of thing that exist or that should exist if they don't exist, that would help in changing these things. I think again, we need to look at the insurance companies and how they're approving things and how they're paying for things. I, I think we need more transparency into their business practices. I think if people want to petition, it should be against getting medical services that they need because th- these days patients, many of them are paying their own premiums. And then at the time when they go to the doctor, they have a high deductible. So they're paying out of pocket for their medical care as well. And mo- most of these people are living paycheck to paycheck and they're really struggling just to get medical care. I, I think this whole system needs to be overhauled. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, I agree. I think that, you know, patients are paying for, um, you know, they're, the, the biggest complaint I get from patients is, well, I'm paying for insurance. Why do I have to then pay on top, for, you know, for my copay and my deductible on top of that? Um, so I think there's a lot of patients don't understand the way insurance works. And the insurance companies in the end are the ones who are, who are making all the money, you know? That makes sense. The, uh, I guess the like the last couple of things I always like to leave off on are like hopefully like more positive things that are going on or like what people can be doing. And so like that question is kind of a transition into this, which is for for why why let so like a huge segment of the population of my podcast are people that are in college right now. What would and so like some of them are like at the point in their lives where they could potentially do something else versus what the the major they chose when they were like 16 or 17. Is there anything that with the, an epidemic this large, are there, are there good key areas that like we need good doctors or we need people with these types of specialties to come in and help out? Like, are you, are you, are you too aware of like different need areas that maybe people can get excited about potentially addressing those needs and then specialize and then come in and help out? 
But I think we definitely need more specialists like Dr. Ibrahim in physical medicine and rehab and pain management doctors. Um, I think there's a lot of need in like social work and rehab and psychology and counseling regarding addiction issues. Yeah, I mean, and primary care too. I mean, having a you know a primary care doctors in you know the inner cities and and those areas where these epidemics are you know are are really occurring, um, I think is huge too because. Um, a lot of doctors try to avoid those areas, and so these patients are forced, you know, they're in pain. They have no option but to get it off the street because they don't have a doctor in the area who takes their insurance or who's willing to see them or, or you know, that their one doctor in that area is booked out for three months. Um, so, you know, encouraging doctors to to be able to practice in those areas, um, I think, is, is a big thing, too. Mm-hmm. The, I think in Illinois, I don't know if this is anywhere else, but, like, there's there's... Usually, like, uh, if you if you get a degree in something and you go and work in the inner cities, that you get like a huge section or segment of your debt taken off of. Um, yeah, yeah, they have some, the same thing they have for um, for medical school too. Um, but again, it's you know, uh, um, it's it's more than just getting their you know their their student loan forgiven. It's you know, it comes down to um, just you know the kind of the kind of the volume of patients and how hard they have to work to make ends meet at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Is there one thing, because I know like everyone knows that medical medical school is like this really long process or like slightly larger, longer than normal, normal <laughs> college, I guess. I don't know how, how to say this. I, I guess that's a, a word vomit, but the it's it's more expensive and it takes a little bit more time. Is there a good litmus test that people can give themselves or like try and, uh, see if a pain management specialist is something that they would get really passionate about? Like, Ibrahim, is there, is there an aspect, like, is there like a moment yeah, I mean, where you're like, oh, I, this is why I wanted to do this. And maybe that's something that the people yeah, I mean, it, try themselves. You know, everyone has their, sorry. Uh, I mean, everyone has their, you know, the kind of their own story of why they decided to go to medical school. Um, a, a lot of patients, I think a lot of you know, people who go into medical school don't really know, you know, there's some people know from the get go what, you know, what specialty they want to do. Um, but I think a lot of people like I did, I, you know, I had no idea I wanted to do physical medicine rehabilitation when I started medical school. I actually thought I was probably going to just do, you know, internal medicine. Um, and then as you go through your rotations in medical school, you, you get exposed to a lot of different subspecialties and, and primary care and, and, and everything. And then you kind of see like, wow, you know, I, this is something that I really like and this is something that I really enjoy. Uh, I mean, for me, it was, you know, I didn't even know physical medicine rehabilitation existed um, until my third year of medical school. And I just, you know, I kind of, by happenstance, happened to do a rotation in it and I just fell in love with it. And and then even from there, I wasn't sure what kind of subspecialty within physical medicine rehab I was going to do until my, uh, until my residency. And when I started, you know, then I started treating um, patients, um, you know, doing injections and um, seeing the sports medicine side of things. Again, you know, it's something I really enjoy doing, and and that's how I ended up doing. Um, and I ended up in the field that I'm in now. Um, so I think you know the key is keep your mind open. If you you know if you decide that, I, mean, I think being a physician is a is a great career choice regardless. You know, it's you've got job security. It's you know there there are I don't think there are too many out of you know unemployed physicians out there, um, but uh, you know or people who graduated medical school and decided, nah, I don't want to be a doctor after all. Um, but I can't see the same for, you know, communication majors and, and attorneys. And, and I, plenty, I know plenty of attorneys who aren't practicing law right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, in the end, you know, being a doctor is, is a great career choice. Um, plus, you know, you 
you do make it to make a difference in, in your patients' lives, regardless of your specialty. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, uh, but you know, I think the key is, yeah, just keep your, you know, keep your mind open. Don't, you know, don't go in close mind. Like, this is what I'm going to do. And this is all I'm going to do. Um, because I think you'll just, you'll find your rotations in medical school and, and residency more enjoyable if you're just kind of open to anything. Uh, Linda, were you going to add something? Yeah, another thing, I get some students, they sometimes ask if they can come shadow me or observe. So if somebody's not really sure what they want to do, they can reach out to a doctor and ask if they can come spend a day just seeing what it's all about. Yeah. There was a a, a person that I interviewed. I'm trying to remember her name. I, I, I really suck at remembering people's names in the moment, um, as Ibrahim uh, noted earlier, even though we were talking. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> This person, they went back to school at 30, and uh, they did it at 30 because they they said to themselves, in four years, I'll be 34. If I go back to school now, I'll I'll be 34, and I'll have the degree I always wanted. And and that oh, uh, and that person became like the leading one of the big experts in in her field within like eight years. And so I think I think sometimes there's like there's two camps of people: people that are in college right now and like exploring, like completely like destroying the box that they live inside of and finding different things about themselves. Like that's like 50% of the, of the value of going to school. Another thing is for people right. who are listening in there or maybe in their first or second uh, you know, career or job that if you're not happier that you're looking for something else, like do what Linda said, like maybe go shadow some people do what Ibrahim said, like try different things. And if, if this, if you, if you find out that like being a pain management specialist, helping out with the opioid epidemic or just helping out in sports medicine or anything like that, it's interesting to you. Like just ask yourself, if you if you were to if you were to lay out what you needed to do to get that, and let's say it's like six years of more schooling on what you you don't have, like, and you ask yourself like, in six years, what will I have if I don't do this? You know, you'll have the like same similar jobs, and you won't be happy. Versus like potentially six years from now, you'll be like doing the thing you love. Um, which right. I think exactly. yeah, as like a young person who like uh, youngish. I'm not young anymore. I just realized that while I said that. But um, <laughs> the, um like there's always this feeling like you're, you're you're like if you're not like doing the next thing or like there's like this track or like you're racing towards something and like there's no race like you're not like there's not like a, a giant list of human beings and like how people can like perform and finding what they love is like some type of like metric that's being tracked um like no one cares if you like take longer to find out what you want to do as long as you are I think, right. doing what you want to do yeah i mean i've had, I had plenty of people in my medical school who you know this was being a doctor was their second career mm-hmm the, and, and I will add, as because I interview a lot of uh, v- venture capitalist people and people who build uh, companies, is that uh, even if you get a medical degree and you don't end up, for, for uh, maybe like you learn that you hate bl- the sight of blood, um, you could also help build a startup that'll help people. Like there's there's many issues in this conversation that we noticed, uh, talked about that were like system based or like uh, or, or that maybe you can make like a nonprofit or something like, to help out these with these issues. And so you could use your understanding of the of medicine to aid people in other ways as well. So even if right, yeah, you, yeah, there's like so many different versatilities. Like I I I've know many people personally who um find like even when they've like will do some some uh doctor training like some doctor work and then they'll still go help out with startups and that type of stuff. So like there's just there's a lot of opportunities with it, which I think is really amazing. But um yeah, like I said, I mean there's there's lots of different things you could do within the career of medicine that don't involve actually seeing patients. I mean. People work for pharmaceutical companies. They work for, you know, I know that one guy from uh, who used to work for Dr. Oz, you know, so um, there's, you know, you don't have to actually, just because you're a doctor doesn't mean you have to sit in an office and see patients all day. Mm-hmm. The, um, 
So uh, last two questions, because we're coming up at the end. Uh, the the more fun question I, I tend to a, uh, enjoy asking people is, um, so both of you are experts or are very smart at what you do. Are there, is there something that you wonder about that you don't have the answer to that you wouldn't mind sharing? Like, so that I'll give you an example because it's kind of a, a weird question. The, um, I always wonder if, it, like, the, like the Big Bang happened and then the universe came, like the universe as we live in it exists. So if you were to go back and you were to like, like snuff out the Big Bang before it happened, um, what would be here in its stead? And like what, like what like constructs would be here? And like, it kind of bugs me um, a lot. So I ask a lot of physicists that, that question and then they get bugged by me bugging them. But like, what are, what are, are, is there any questions? It doesn't have to be that big. It could be like, why do people jaywalk when there's just like a, a, a place for it, like two, two feet away? But is there something, is there a question you have that you don't have the answer to? Uh, geez. Hmm. That's tough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny because I was just talking to my fiance yesterday, but you know, the whole thing with the, the picture of the, the black hole came out. And uh, she said that she's always had this theory that, you know, our universe was, you know, was the kind of expelled from another black hole. And then everything that kind of came here was, was from that. And I, you know, you think about it, it, just no one really knows how everything got started. And, and, uh, so it'd be, it'd be interesting to kind of, see, even like, you know, you think back of all the time of dinosaurs, you don't realize that there was really a hundred million years in between Stegosaurus and a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Like you think, Oh, time of dinosaurs. Yeah. You know, six, five million years ago, but a lot of stuff happened on earth, you know, during that time. And it just, it's amazing how things went from that to where we are today. I think the question I wonder about is where were we before we were born? Were we just a bunch of atoms and molecules and what, what were we? Yeah, the um, that's what I always think is odd that like um no that's a really good question because it's like the before and after like people people always wonder like what's gonna come after but like I only know like maybe I I talked too much in college or something but um like the people who would talk about these things they would never like ask that question like where was I before if I I'm concerned about where was I after because they're both equally valid like like where yeah yeah like it's a very interesting question I don't know how you'd solve that or uh, mm -hmm. test for it. Um, all right. So last question is, are there any books either in your domain that you really love and get excited about or that you like gift to people that you wouldn't mind recommending? I, I read a lot. So it's like, I need to fill out my book bookshelf and people who listen read a lot as well. Uh, well, uh, Dr. Gurdjieff has written multiple books, so she could definitely recommend one of hers. Uh, <laughs> you know, she's had, <laughs> she's got, um, uh, a lot of, uh, books about, you know, like the kind of, yeah, uh, you know, the healthcare system and, and its flaws and, and, you know, kind of where we're going. So I think that's, uh, you know, it's a very interesting read because, you know, everyone always says, oh, yeah, yeah universal healthcare, universal healthcare, that's the answer, but they don't really consider what the consequences are. So it, it gives a very unique kind of perspective uh, on that. And uh, I think it's, you know, it's a very interesting read. And those will be in the, in the description. But, uh, Linda, did you have... I, I read constantly, but I tend not to read so many medical books. I, I read a lot of thrillers just for the enjoyment. Um, I, I, there's not one specific. I just read so many books. Hmm. I probably go to the library every week and check out 10 books. The, are you familiar with uh, Linda, Lydia, Overwatch? Or, I think it's called Lydia. It's like the little, you can get the app on your phone so you, you can get all the ebooks. 
for free from your library? Yeah, no, I'm not. Okay, well, I'll, I'll link it to you. Anyone else who's interested in it, like taking advantage of their library system that you pay taxes, so you should definitely take advantage of it. I go to the library all the time. I enjoy going to the library. But you can get an app on your phone. I, I'm not sponsored by them. I just talk about them a lot. And you can uh, get all your the ebooks from the library on there. And that was Linda and Ibrahim, both doctors, looking at the pain problem in America. And the app that I was thinking of is called Libby. It'll be in the show notes. It's an amazing app. Everyone should go and support their local library by getting, you know, the, the library card, which is all free. Then you get the app, which is free. Then you get free books. And then you can read. And you can uh, get the audiobooks, which is really awesome. But So that was the episode. Check them out on their social media. Uh, you can see them in the description. There'll be links to all of them. Check us out. And let me know what you think. Uh, if you like this type of like little mini vignettes on issues that are going on out there. Um, both of these people are extremely fascinating and could be episodes in their own rights about how they got where they're at, where they're at in, in life. But I think it's also interesting 